Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you today as we continue our Fathom series. In fact, let's start by reading together our series scripture out of the book of Ephesians. Let's read it together. Big voices, go. And I ask him, being Jesus, that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. So, today our Fathom series takes us to this amazing, mysterious, and at times baffling expression of God's love known as the church. (laughs) The Greek word for that is ekklesia. It means a called out assembly of people. So the study of the people of God is known as ecclesiology. This study points then not just to our church, but to God's global, universal church. Not to buildings, but to people. God's church is always about people. People who follow Christ within the context of a community. Which is essential, right, to following Christ, because if we are to love God and love people, it requires people. So that's why community is really important. And that's the trick. It doesn't take a miracle to see God in nature when you're on a mountaintop or you're near that waterfall. It's easy to see God there. It does take a miracle to see God in and among broken people, people that are different than me. Yet that's the call from God to us. Watching this right now, we have people of every spectrum of the socioeconomic scale, every political leaning, every different life experience. And God says this, I want all of you to be a family. A family only made possible because of the miraculous glue that holds this whole thing together. And that glue is Jesus. A community only made possible by our connection to the vine of Christ. Now, you think of all the places in the world that we should experience grace and empathy and mercy and understanding. It should be God's church, right? but it isn't always that way. See, the problem is, as followers of Christ, that is not always who we are. And and we can easily lose sight of what's most important amidst our own thoughts and our opinions and our personal convictions. Like, like here's some examples I found um, of just church arguments and the way division happens. One church had a huge argument over the length of the worship pastor's beard. I think that'd be fun. You know, we had Winston last week. I think we should, you know, think about that for just a little bit. Um, an argument rose up in a church because communion was uh, using cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. So big argument over that. Uh, here's a close to home one. Uh, there's some members that actually left a church 
because they switched the brand of coffee they were using. It, it moved towards a, a roast that they didn't like so much. There's a big argument on whether or not a church should allow deviled eggs at the church picnic. Now, I think you could balance that with angel food cake, but you know, still, they weren't sure about the deviled eggs. Should we have that there? And then, of course, there was a disagreement in a church over the term potluck. They wanted to instead call it pot blessing because we don't obviously believe in luck. But I think pot blessing opens up a whole nother set of issues, especially here in Eugene, to have a pot blessing. I think you get people there, but it could be problematic. See, this is when the people of God's church become the problem of God's church. One of the main tools of the enemy is to make that which should be big, small, and that which should be small, big. This is often how the enemy works. And as a people, and yes, as church people, we can lose sight of what's most important. And it's this, the love of Jesus expressed to every person in a way they can understand. Now, I also think it's important to say this, that there are plenty of real and undeniable situations where churches have caused hurt. I know because I've seen it, because I've experienced it myself, I've even unintentionally caused it in my life. Maybe not to you, not yet, but give me time, I might. Stories of church hurt are real, and I'm here to say if that is part of your story, I am so sorry. It wasn't supposed to be like that. I am not here to set up churches as this institution that should never be questioned. It is a broken place because we are a broken people. So churches and church leaders must be teachable and accountable and humble. Now I hope to model that, but I guarantee I will mess it up. That is my promise to you. I'm going to mess that up. Because this thing called church is made up of a bunch of clay vessels. And yet, God still uses the church as part of bringing God's hope to the world. So today, I want to invite us to a vision, to a picture of perhaps what God's church is supposed to be. What God's church could actually become. Now, to do so, we're going to look at a passage that is really the blueprint for this very thing. It comes from the book of Romans. It's important because this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians of the church in Rome. So this letter wasn't written to those outside the church. It's to those inside. It's to this place. It's to us, those of us that are church folk. And here we will see a description both of what we can be and what we should be as we attempt to reflect God's church to the world. Or more accurately, the Christ-centered community that God always had in mind. And here's the first thing I would point to. The Christ-centered community promotes unity. Romans 12 is where we're going to be starting verse 16. Let's read it together. Big voices, go. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, living in harmony, that is a powerful picture, isn't it? 
understand in music, harmony is not found in playing the same note, though that, that's called unison. By definition, harmony is a different note that makes sense as part of the whole chord. It means I don't have to sound just like you to sound good with you. We, we see this in relationships. Maybe you've experienced this. How many of you have experienced the opposites attract phenomenon? Maybe with a, 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 a girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or something like that. The opposite attracts phenomenon. You know, the, the introvert meets the extrovert and they fall in love. Or it's the, the outdoorsy person meets the city person and they fall in love. Or the cat person meets the dog person and somehow they fall in love. I don't know how that works, but they manage to make it work. Somehow, in that opposites, that togetherness makes something greater. It is actually the fact that they are not the same, yet still united in love, that makes their impact on the world so much more powerful. See, that's the community of Christ. That in all of our differences, we can come together and not just share one note but thousands, not just one type of instrument, but hundreds. And together, instead of a sound of a single melody just absently plinked out like on a toy piano, we can bring the sound of a symphony to our world. Now, what makes that possible? It's possible because we're all playing from the same sheet of music. All of us gathered together around a single epic song, a single magnum opus. It is the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the grace of Christ. That's what draws us together. That is the music we play from. And often, the problems that arise in the church do so when I become way more concerned about playing my note than about playing the notes of God's symphony. More about loving me than loving Christ and others. And I start saying, well, I don't know if I want to play the notes that fit that symphony, that chord. I just want to play my note, right? I just want to, it's my favorite note. I, I love this note. I, it's important to me. I grew up with this note. My parents handed this note down to me as a child. You should all listen and you should just really enjoy my note. And so here it is, honk, you know, <laughs> that's what we bring. We start believing that everyone should think and act just like me. Do what I do. And we start to think we're somehow wise in that. Yet Jesus said this, that the wisest of us act like children. Paul and I were at uh, Oakway uh, the other day, and we were in the courtyard at the Oakway. Is it the Oakway Mall? I don't know what we would call it. Is that, you know, Oakway, there's restaurants and stuff. Um, there's a courtyard there, and we see these there's two families that, that appear in the courtyard. It's obvious they don't know each other, but they both have little kids. And in a moment, just moments of, of them arriving at the same place at the same time, the kids immediately start playing together. They're running, they're laughing, they're playing tag. No one had to tell them to, to, to now agree on a game and figure it out, you know, agree on the rules, let's get a referee. You know, there was nobody had agenda. They together just yielded as kids to the running and laughing that was taking place with their brand new friends. 
Could that be the church? Could we decide that being together, celebrating what we share in Jesus is far more important than the things that make us different? That's what was happening in this passage. See, that was the problem. It's calling out those who were unwilling to play with those that they saw as different. There, it was saying, this passage was saying, what do you mean you won't associate with people of a lower position? What do you mean you refuse to empathize with another's point of view? This passage is showing us that the way that church was operating was not only immature, it was arrogant. And that always works against unity. If you've ever watched really, really good musicians play, and we have really, really great musicians here at Cove Church, when they're playing, they're not playing everything they know how to play all the time. <laughs> if they did that, it would be a mess. If they were just playing all the stuff they can do as fast as they can all the time, it would be a mess. But what they do instead is they bridle their power. They refine their voice for the sake of the song. One backs off so another can solo. They all drop down to create dynamics. They make room for all of the players. That's a picture of what it looks like for us in community. Sometimes my voice is clearly heard. Other times it's back in support of another. One voice isn't more important. All the voices matter because ultimately it's the song of God's grace that needs to be heard. And that is how this thing that we call the church becomes the symphony of Jesus. Yes, I have a part to play and you have a part to play, but my part's not more important than your part. It's different, but it is not more valuable. Yet too often... Church people, they just let it become about them. That, that I only see me and, and my needs and my perspective and my passions and my opinions. And as I begin to make those things big, instead of keeping them small, unity is eroded. Because I care so much more about my note than about the overall song of God's church. And so the world sees a church that is embattled while God calls us to be a church united. We are called to lay down our opinions and pick up God's blessing. Yet at times we choose to lay down God's blessing so we can pick up our opinions. The community of faith reminds us that we can let go of a lot of stuff that ultimately doesn't really matter so that we can lay hold of the unity that does because the Christ-centered community promotes unity. That's the first thing. Here's the second. The Christ-centered community pursues peace. Let's continue the passage. Romans 12, big voices go. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This passage is saying that in this community known as the church, we will have to work at peace. 
Peace is work. It doesn't just happen. Uh, like there's moments in our house that I'll be in the house and, and it's, it's those moments maybe at night and the house is all clean and everything's put away and organized and all the dishes are done and the counters are wiped off and maybe there's candlelight and maybe some, some light music going on. But I realize that that doesn't just happen, right? That happened because of the work that took place an hour before that moment, you know, where you're doing the dishes and the fire alarm's going off because you burned the food and, and, and you've got grandbabies that are crying and you're changing nuclear diapers. That, that all happened moments before. So work happened and that made the way for peace. Peace requires work. In fact, peace is way harder than just letting offenses remain, just letting conflict continue. We want to do that sometimes because that's the easier way. And this passage is saying, make sure you pay your way for peace. You do the work of peace. We don't always want to do the work of peace, do we? No, often it's easier to just let the conflict stay or just let the offense grow, or even just let the relationship end instead of doing the work of reconciliation. Yet the cry of the apostle here is apply your energy, your resource, your effort to the work of peace. God's going to do the work of avenging. <laughs> don't worry, we don't have to do that. But we are asked to do the work of peace at least as much as it depends on us. Now that's a, a very different way to live, right? Paula, my wife, was a, a preschool teacher for a while when we were in Redmond, and I was always amazed how cool she could be when a kid would be just in total meltdown mode, and she just never flustered her, like never stressed her out. Kid would be just crying, tantrum. She'd be like, oh, Looks like you need a timeout today, don't you? Yeah. And kids just yelling, throwing stuff, you know, I want my popsicle, they're freaking out. And she's like, well, you can, you can have a popsicle, but first you got to give me that knife, you know, that kind of thing. You got to pass the weapon over, you know, and, and, and she was so good with the leverage. He's like, really, I just give you the knife and I get the, yes, yes, if you give me the knife, I'll give you the popsicle. And so they give the knife over and they all the leverage and then everything would be good and at peace. The child's crisis was never her crisis, and I watched her do that over and over, and then I thought, I realized, I think she does that with me, <laughs> that I could come home totally stressed out. She's like, you know, maybe you should just relax, and if you relax, maybe, maybe we'll get some ice cream. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a good idea, you know, if I just relax and I, I could get ice cream, and suddenly I'm at peace. I changed because she met me with peace. She did that work and she invited me to do the same. That's how Christ's followers are to live. Now there's no guarantees that everyone else is going to live that way. But you, Christ follower, you get to do the work to live at peace with everyone. Because the Christ-centered community pursues peace. The second thing here is the last thing. The Christ-centered community propels grace. Let's finish out the passage. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. First understanding is this. As a Christ follower, I don't only receive grace. I give it. I multiply it. I send it. That's what we see in giving food or drink to an enemy in need. You're overcoming evil with good. That is a picture of grace. Now, there's an interesting phrase that's tucked in here. It's actually quoting a proverb. The phrase is this, that in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on your enemy's head. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a super nice thing to do, right? Doesn't sound nice, doesn't sound pleasant, doesn't sound loving or gracious. It seems incongruent in that way with the rest of the passage. So what's going on here? What's it really saying? Here's what it's saying. It becomes much more clear in the original context. It's saying this. When I am kind to you, although you've been unkind to me, I can actually awaken, bring back to, spark back to life your love for God. Like a fire, okay? Think about it. I'm, I'm super mean to you. And then in response, you do something very kind to me. That's going to mess with me, okay? It's going to make me question my actions. It's going to make me go, wow, I didn't see that coming. What are they doing? Why are they responding so kindly to me? So what it's saying is this. When I give God's grace to you, it can activate God's grace in you. My grace then is not here to cause you pain. It's here to stir the fires of your spirit back to life. That's the heaping of the burning coals. It's like barbecue briquettes. You know, when you're spread apart, they're not very effective. But when you heap them together, they actually ignite each other and are made alive. That's the picture here of heaping burning coals. Offering, offering God's grace to another so you can actually awaken them to God's love. My kindness can stoke the fires of your spirit and help you come alive. This is actually a big part of God's arsenal in reaching people who are distant or disconnected in their relationship with God. The way I treat my enemies can actually change my enemies. Now, when I just answer unkindness with unkindness, evil with evil, that's just status quo. Nothing changes in that, right? But when you're good to me, even though I know we are at odds, it makes me ask the question, why? And the answer is grace, a grace given from my enemy. I, I saw this lived out once. Um, we were planting a church in Redmond, and one of the we had lots of different places we met through the course of that church, but one of the stopping points of places we met was a grange, the local Redmond grange. And if you've ever been around granges, it's just this interesting kind of microcosm of a society. There's like a grange master, and um, they're, they, they love the grange. They're in charge of the, the building, and, and who rents it, and that sort of thing. Well, there was a grange master there, this, this old retired man. And he loved that building. It actually, it had burned down, and so they built a brand new grange. So it was actually a fairly new building. It was really nice. 
And so we were meeting in that space. And he, he was in charge of the, of the facility, so he loved that building. And, and it seemed like after every Sunday, I'd, I'd work so hard to try to do all the things on the list and get our teams to do all the stuff to, to make the Grange people happy. But we'd always, always miss one little thing. Oh, you didn't put paper towels in here, or, or there was you know, a little bit of Kleenex left over there. You didn't empty that garbage. There's always one little thing. And every Sunday, he would tell me the one thing we missed. He wouldn't tell me any of the great stuff we did, but he'd tell me the one thing we missed. And this happened every Sunday, to the point it was making me crazy. I was like, this guy is the worst. He is a thorn in my side. He is my enemy. I don't like him. So somewhere in the course of this, after he had said one of the things that we missed at some point when I was talking to him, he said, um, I've just got to let you know I'm, I've got to change the lights in the big room of the Grange. And they're really tall. It involves me going up on a big, tall ladder. And he's like, I don't, at my age, I, I don't want to do ladders. They're not really safe for me, but I got to change those big, tall lights. I'll be doing that this week. And my first response was, awesome. You should go and try to change those lights. That's really great. Let's see what happens. I hope you have insurance. That was my first thought. So I drive away from that conversation. And I'm telling you, this doesn't happen to me often, but I really, I, I know now that this was from Jesus. I'm driving away from that conversation and Jesus goes, Aaron, you go back there and you tell him you're going to change the lights. And I'm like, that guy's been so mean to me. I mean, he's so awful. No, why would I want to do that? Aaron, you go back there. You tell him you're going to change the lights. Okay. Turn around, I go back in a quiet voice, I kind of come to him like, hey, uh, you know those lights, you got to change. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take care of that. He's like, really? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You just let me know when, when you want it done, and we'll work it out. So we worked out a time, got there, a big tall ladder, got up, I changed all these lights, got done. And I can tell you that after that event of doing me doing something that I didn't have to do, but that blessed him. Everything in our relationship was different. Everything changed. He's now inviting, him, inviting me over to his house for tea. He's showing me his wood shop where he makes little figurines. I mean, I like became like, like sort of a pseudo son. In his, I don't know, it was weird. It was like, man, I'm in this family now. I'm like part of them now. From that one small display of kindness. And I never heard a peep again about the paper towels after that. Why? Because of this. Grace given to another can then become grace given from another. And flow out of that person. That's how heaping coals on another's head works. If there's a hope that I have for this community, for Cove Church... It's that here grace would be propelled, it would be multiplied, it would be amplified. Because this is how God turns enemies into friends. Not just friends to us, but ultimately friends to Jesus. Because the Christ-centered community propels grace. Let me wrap up with this. Uh, I, I, would, I would bring this simple admission to you. Maybe it's possible that at times we have allowed our church experience to be more about us than about Jesus. I know I've done that at times. 
Because if it was consistently about Jesus, we would consistently do what Jesus said. And in the, the 17th chapter of the book of John, Jesus said something very important. He said, my prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus' prayer was for us to be one. Why would Jesus have to pray that? Because often we are not one. Whether it's our own selfishness or our, our, our disconnection or our church hurt, we easily become divided, distant from one another. Yet we are called to live out, to promote, to model this unity, to pursue peace and to propel grace that we can choose a higher road. And we can build here a better community. And if we would do that work, not only will we experience the peace of a unified church, but we can also experience a greater measure of God's blessing. Isn't that what we need more than anything else? Is God's blessing. Because it is the miraculous outcome, that blessing is the miraculous outcome of those who are truly one in Christ. And that, friends, is who we are called to be. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com, or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.